I've now lived in Ohio for, for almost half my life. I'm coming up on that odometer turn soon, in which you spend more time someplace else than where uh, you started in. And although I'm pretty convinced that Ohio and Michigan are similar in lots of ways, uh, culture and people, um, snow effect off of the lake and all those other things, although uh, Lake Erie is, is certainly the JV of the Great Lakes uh, in comparison to Lake Michigan. So that, that, that would be dissimilar in that way. Uh, and I was reminded of one other dissimilarity, though, yesterday between um, being at a church in Michigan and being at a church in Ohio. Yesterday, there's the podium there, and like at any church, there's always a random collection of items inside that podium, you know, empty coffee cups and pencils and the, all, the whole thing. Uh, but when I looked under there, I saw something that I would never, ever find uh, at a church in Ohio, and that was a reusable grocery bag, you know, the kind with the straps, uh, that had the University of Michigan logo on the side of it. I said, these are my people. Thank you very much. So, well, I'd like to read from Acts chapter 4 this morning, verses 23 through 31. You'll know that the book of Acts is largely the story of Jesus uh, sending his church into the world from Jerusalem where things got started and then uh, catapulting it out, at least in the ancient world, as far away to Rome. And then in these early uh, chapters of Acts, you have the way that the church begins to take shape. And it wasn't all uh, uh, gumdrops and lollipops. There was great difficulty that the church faced and, and hardship and challenge. And yet, as we've sung this morning, a sense of God's faithfulness, which has kept his people. So in many ways, I recognize we jump into the storyline here in Acts chapter 4. But uh, we'll pick things up, and I'll just read verses 23 through 31 for us. And the second word, at least here, the they being a reference to Peter and to John, the apostles. When they were released from prison, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Amen. Just a prayer for us. Our gracious God and uh, loving Heavenly Father, now with uh, scriptures open before us, we ask that uh, what we know not, that you would teach us, that what we have not, that you would grant us, and that what we are not yet, that you would make us. We ask these things for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, I wonder if you picked up on the twice repeated phrase in that scripture reading that I just had for us uh, that's nestled into the passage here before us. The first instance of it is there right in verse 29. It says, quotes 
grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Grant us boldness. And if you just let your eyes drop down just a smidgen further, you'll see the same phrase also there in verse 31. And they continue to speak the word of God with boldness. In other words, with fearless confidence, they spoke up about Jesus. Boldness, it's a willingness to take risks and to act innovatively. It's confidence and courage. It's, it's the opposing force of fearfulness. It's the willingness to stand up when others shrink back. And what we'll uh, see is that the early church uh, prayed for boldness because the heat of opposition was getting turned up on them. There's a sense of timidity, and they said, Lord, we need your help. Grant us boldness. Give us courage. We don't want to be obnoxious. We don't want to be belligerent, but we do want to have fearless confidence in your word and for you, and for you, boldness. In my studying for this passage, I was reminded of a, of a sort of gut-wrenching modern-day picture of Christian boldness. Uh, perhaps you'll uh, remember that in 25, there was the horrific uh, video that was circulating on the internet, which of course detailed the brutal execution of 21 Egyptian Christians by the Islamic State terrorist group. The, the video uh, showed the ISIS so soldiers marching the, the brave Christian martyrs down to the seashore. And then with uh, swords in hand, the ISIS captors made their Christians kneel down and then gave them a chance to recant the Christian faith. But remaining true to their convictions, the Christian men would not recant. And of course, in response, their captors systematically beheaded all 21 of our brothers as they mouthed, Jesus, help us. And you say to yourself, well, what in the world did they do to get themselves in that position? The answer to that question is quite simply that they were, quotes, people of the cross. So these uh, Egyptians, these Egyptian men of the cross, they have this powerful picture in which they exemplify for us boldness to their final breath as God granted them uh, faith to the end. And then, of course, this beautiful transition that takes place that the minute that their heart stops pumping for the last time, our brother, brothers were ushered into the presence of the Lord Jesus, of course, who defeated sin and death as the man of the cross. But nonetheless, the, 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 their martyrdom, their story, it, it's a reminder to us that throughout uh, history, Christians have been opposed and arrested and persecuted and, and muzzled. And this story here in Acts is an early situation in which opposition to the people of the cross was intensified. And then in the face of social pressure, the response of the Christians is to pray for social courage. Social pressure, social courage. They prayed for uh, God to grant them boldness for Jesus, to not be cowardly and shrink back. And I think that's probably where, where we live, isn't it? We're, of course, privileged to, to live in a place where it's like, unlikely that we will be beheaded for Jesus. But having said that, I think we all can recognize that things are sometimes getting rather uncomfortable for us in the public sphere. Any sense of, uh, of like, uh, culturally shared Christian virtues seems to be uh, dissipating. I'm going to assume that uh, you're like the people of our church and that there are some of you who are finding it increasingly difficult to be a person of the cross 
while also being a person in the cubicle. Because in so many ways, there are these uh, social pressures that are now uh, tightening down upon us. Things are changing, you're recognizing it. The things that were once condemned are now celebrated, and those who refuse to celebrate are now condemned. And this section in Acts is, is wonderfully helpful to us because it's a reminder to us that we aren't unique in this, nor are we alone in this. And what comes from here is what we see in this passage is that uh, as we experience voices today that uh, socially intimidate us, that we can actually, with God's help, stand strong and not shrink back. We can pray for God to grant us fearless confidence in him. Side note, if you have, like, no sense of what I'm talking about, uh, no sense of being squeezed at least by, like, mild forms of persecution, then it means, friend, that you probably have to take a long look in the mirror and ask yourself if that's the case because you are a discreet Christian or if you're simply a, a name-only nominal Christian. After all, Jesus taught his disciples that people hated him and they should expect to be hated, too, for their association with him. And the most prolific writer of the New Testament says, quotes, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. This is actually the, the normative experience of the true Christian. This is why we very much need for God to give us boldness so that we won't shrink back, so that we won't fall away. So as we approach this section in Acts, which uh, responds to the persecution with the prayer, I hope that we don't sort of look at it with an eye in it to, to ancient history, but very much feels relevance for us today and for Christians in every season of history. But before we get to the verses in particular, uh, let me just do a little bit of context for us and, and pick up things about what's happened in the previous 23 verses. Because verse 23 sets the scene for us uh, from what was happening back in Acts, as our narrator, Dr. Luke, tells us that when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. The they here being a reference to Peter and John, who were then uh, set free to the, streets, to the streets of Jerusalem after a night of incarceration. You see, what had happened was that back in uh, verse 3, Peter and John were arrested not for uh, vandalism or, or for foolishness or armed robbery, but for verse 2 tells us they were arrested for teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. And the religious leaders of the day, those with social authority, with the capacity to intimidate and pressure, the, the religious leaders of the day were really annoyed at Peter and John for saying the things they were saying. Because they didn't buy into Jesus being who he said he was. They, they weren't worth this teaching that Jesus was resurrected from the dead by God. In fact, they were so put off by Peter and John proclaiming these things that they actually had them arrested on what were rather flimsy charges. And then, after having Peter and John uh, spend the night in the cell, the, the religious leaders then call them to the floor. It's like, you know, when you've been naughty in school, you, you get called to the principal's office and you go, uh-oh, well, here, here's what happens. They get called in, verse 17. The religious leaders, they, you know, they, they wag their finger at them, saying, you, you need to shut all of this Jesus business down. And Peter got really intimidated, and he apologized profusely, and he quietly slipped out the back door. No, it doesn't say that, right? You have your Bibles before you? No, in one of my all-time favorite lines in the Bible, you know, they're giving the business to Peter, and he says to them, verse 19, hey, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, 
you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. In other words, he's telling them, hey, I don't deny that you're accusing me of speaking about Jesus. I, I don't deny it, and I'm not going to stop doing it. So I guess that means that the ball's in your courts, fellas. And the religious leaders, they, they find themselves in this real conundrum in the face of Peter's boldness because they thought that if they pushed him around, he'd fold over, but he doesn't. And the only recourse they have is to, is like to blow more verbal hot air at them. Verse 21. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them. And with that, Peter and John walked out the front door of the chorus house. And that's the story that's being reset in verse 23, as Peter and John are released and they retreat to the security of their Christian friends. And before we get to the great prayer that these Christians prayed together, I just want us to briefly take note of, of Peter and John's example. Because their, their boldness here is a reminder to us that Christian courage is impactful upon other Christians. So, so that when we see someone staying steady in the face of opposition, like our Egyptian Christian brothers, not giving evil for evil, but instead doing as Jesus taught them, overcoming evil with good and praying for our enemies, when you see people doing like that, it has an impact upon us. This is why we need to be in relationship with one another. Because we're stirred up by each other's courage. When I see you being a faithful Christian, you, you actually encourage me. You challenge me. You, you are discipling me. Because you're showing me what it looks like to prioritize life according to Jesus' agenda. You see, friends, we, hear, we see here in Acts 4 that that true Christianity is not a solo experience. That, that Christianity, is, it's, it's relational in every aspect. That it starts with being brought into friendship with God through the Lord Jesus, and then it proceeds through life as we're brought into friendship with God's people, the church. You see, in so many ways, Peter, John, and their friends, they're actually showing us a mature Christianity. They're showing us that you need other Christians to know you. You need to feel the impact of their example. You need to pray for each other when life is scary and tough, which is what Peter and John do after they're set free. They, isn't it interesting that they head straight to the comfort of their friends? And as a Christian community of, and as a community of Christians, they pray together and for one another. You see, we're often reminded that the early church prayed, and, and here in the verses that follow, which we'll now uh, drill down into in a fairly expedited way, we, we see an example of what they pray. So, so let's look at this prayer that runs from verses 24 through 30. Uh, for today, uh, I just want us to help us see what is essentially the substance of their prayer. You have it, what are they saying? And there are really three little areas that they emphasize in their prayer. Their prayer, number one, if you want to take notes, affirms God's sovereign rule. And number two, appeals for God to give boldness. And then number three, asks God for signs of his activity. So, so first of all, the substance of the believer's prayer affirms God's sovereign rule. So put your mind back in the context here. So having heard this report from Peter and John about the intimidating tactics of the religious authorities, verse 24 says that the Christians lifted their voices and in a wonderful harmony in prayer, they said, Sovereign Lord, 
who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, dot, 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 dot. They, they begin their prayer, not with the immediacy of their need, but with extolling the, the character and the nature of God. They're, they're declaring that he's the sovereign God, that he's our strong God, that, that he's the creator, that he's the, he's the ruler of all that happens on earth. The, the substance of their prayer begins with an affirmation of God's matchless greatness. It's such an interesting way to begin your prayer. Because we often, I was thinking about it, we often praise God as, as creator when we like sit down in the harvest season at a, at a Thanksgiving meal. Or we praise God as creator, like when you, when you take hold of the, the hand of a tiny little newborn and you just go, whew, you think of God as creator. God, we, we, we typically praise God as creator in days of gladness. But here, they call out to creator God during a season of difficulty. Why? Well, because when we remember that God is the ruler of all, that he's our strong God, it tells us that he has power for us when we are weak and oppressed. It's the things that we know, that, 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 that the God of the Bible is in charge of all of life, that there isn't a square inch of earth that doesn't, he doesn't exercise dominion over. There isn't a day on the calendar that doesn't belong to him, that he's sovereign over all things, even over the human affairs of those who rebel against him. And that's where the subject of the prayer next moves to. As in verses 25 through 26, they quote Psalm 2 in their prayer. This is a really famous Psalm of David. It speaks about how the nations would rage against the Messiah, about how God would ultimately overcome their rebellion. What's happening in this part of the prayer is that the early church is, is like they're putting the, the, the Bible story pieces together. So, so they're, they're taking the Psalm of David that he penned centuries earlier and they're now seeing it in the fullest meaning in the light of the Lord Jesus' life and death. They're seeing the way that the kings and the rulers of Psalm 2 correspond to the Herod and Pontius Pilate of their day. That the Gentiles and the people of Israel of Psalm 2 point to those who participated in the crucifixion of Jesus. Remember that these brothers and sisters here in Acts 4, many of them were eyewitnesses to the Lord Jesus himself. They witnessed firsthand and had seen the hostility thrust at Jesus as he was nailed to the cross. But they recognized that, that even as these things were done to Jesus, that the hand of God was at work. Verse 28, they were doing, Lord, what your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. That word, verse 28, whatever, it, it, I mean, it includes all of the awfulness that Jesus endured, the, the evil rejection, the false accusations, the, the miscarriage of justice, the wrongful beatings and crucifixion that both Jews and Gentiles poured out on Jesus. All of these whatever things were predestined by God, which means that Jesus' crucifixion wasn't the outcome of some sort of like random historical chance. From the beginning, God had determined that his son would suffer and die undeservedly in our place in order to redeem a lost humanity. The, the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus for our rebellion as it was the satisfaction needed to forgive our sin. And in this prayer, the, the believers affirm 
a deep trust in God's wisdom and ways and his sovereign direction over the detailed events of life. They believed it to the, to the inner core of their being. Do you? Because you see, friends, that there isn't a square inch of earth that God isn't God over from your work cubicle to the prison cell. There isn't a day on the calendar that, that doesn't belong to him. He's sovereign over all situations, even over rulers and authorities, which means that not even those who decide matters of life and death here on earth actually pose a true threat to us. Why? Because we know the one who has defeated death. For, for, for what can we, who can then truly take us down as we were reminded this morning from Romans 8? Well, well, no one can. Because for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So that because our, our strong God is with us, it actually means that we don't have to shrink back. Because he has in his, I mean, just think about this. God has in his personhood and possession what we need for every situation of life. He, he gives what we don't have. He grants faith and courage when we are oppressed by those opposed to the gospel, which is where the prayer turns next to, as the Christians pray for God-granted boldness for their situation. But before we get to that part of the prayer, let, let's just see something that can be easily missed if we're too hasty, which is that the early Christians, they, you notice here that they used the scriptures to, to guide their prayers. They looked at Psalm 2, and it gave an understanding to like, the, the angst of their situation. There's even something really intriguing about the way that verse 24 is phrased. They, they lifted their voices together to God and said, it's almost like the, the, the picture of the choir director. She, she raises her hands and, and cues everyone to speak in unison. That may actually be very well what happened. They, they may have said or sung this part of the psalm because they knew the psalms by heart. The Psalter, it, it always has been the, the songbook and the prayer book of God's people. I hope that you love the Psalms. Because the psalmist, they, they, give, us, they give us words to, to pray in like every situation of life when you just say, Lord, I want to talk to you, but I don't really know what to say because my heart is, is just terribly dry or terribly broken right now. Well, you, you, you can turn to Psalm 73, my flesh and my heart may fail but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You see, the psalmist gives you words to say when, when it's like your heart, it, it's, it's soaring in gratitude and, and you need something more powerful than to say than what you can mumble out yourself. The psalmist says, Psalm 89, O Lord God Almighty, who is like you? You are mighty, O Lord. Your faithfulness surrounds you. You see why the Psalter was and is the prayer book of God's people. So, so don't miss this. Don't miss what these Christians do. They look to the Psalms to give them hope in the pressure of their social situation. They prayed the scriptures as a means of bolstering faith and courage. It's something I'm increasingly understanding and participating in myself. And if you'll take hold of these things, the Psalms will help you do in our day and age what the early church was doing in Acts 4. So the substance of the believer's prayer, first of all, affirms God's sovereign rule. Secondly, and a little bit quicker, 
their prayer appeals for God to give boldness. That's the essence of verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Uh, quite, quite simply, the Christian community asks God to grant them fearless confidence as the social pressures around them increase. Uh, don't forget that Peter and John have been imprisoned. Uh, they've been hauled into the intimidation of the courtroom. They've, they've been threatened by powerful figures. Uh, and as Peter and John report all of this to their friends, probably the other disciples, the other early Christians, uh, they hear these things and they all begin to gather together and they pray. It's, it's such a lovely picture to, to see. Because I have to think that, that while Peter and John were, were bold, that, that surely their, their hearts must have been racing, right? There, there had to be a streak of fearfulness in them. Because, I mean, boldness isn't the absence of fear. It's just like the, the reining in of that emotion and, and supplanting it with something greater. All that to say, after this intense experience, Peter and John, they sought out their Christian friends. They said, man, we got to tell you everything that just happened to us. And then... Then they prayed together. This is actually the church at its finest, uh, entering into life together, sharing one another's burdens, praying for one another. They, They prayed because they needed renewed courage, which is often what God grants us when we pray. When we pray, our fears are quieted. Our perspective, it's it's, it's realigned, if you like. It's, it's, it's God-aligned. You, you get your nose out of your chest, and you get your head upward, and you go, oh, yeah, okay, this is helpful. Uh, I'm assuming you've, you've had this experience of, of, of praying together with a group of friends about a situation, and then when someone says amen at the end, there's just this, this sense of the presence of God among you that, that gives you peace and hope. You see, God uses... He uses the means of prayer to, to nourish us. Uh, someone else has said that, that, that prayer is like the, the straw that you use to get to the refreshing water in the cup. It, it, it's the channel in which the living waters of Jesus come to us. Uh, this is why the early church prayed together. They, they needed God to give them what they were running low on. Lord, give us renewed courage as we enter into a new week. Father, grant us fearless confidence in your word. Gracious God, give us boldness to speak up about Jesus. It's always, of course, interesting to, 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 to observe what they, what they didn't pray for, right? We don't read things like, Lord, please stop them from being so unpleasant. Lord, please let this persecution end now. Lord, please remove these figures of authority so that life is easier for us. I mean, it wouldn't be wrong to pray for those things. But that's not the substance of their prayer. And let that not be lost on us. They prayed quite simply. Lord, you see what's going on. You see what's coming at us. Please be attentive to their threats and help us not to shrink back, but to keep on speaking boldly. In other words, they appeal for God to give them boldness in word and then in deed. And then finally in verse 30, we see that uh, as they pray, that they ask God for signs of his activity. They ask God for signs of his activity. That, that's the gist of verse 30. 
Grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So the the disciples have just got done asking God for boldness as they encounter opposition to Christianity. And instead of asking God to, to level those who are set against them, they actually pray for signs and wonders of mercy to be heard and received by those who have it out for them. An old Christian commentator, he just goes by the name Alexander. I would love to just go by one name, Alexander. He summarizes the intent of verse 30 by saying that their demand is not for miracles of vengeance or destruction, such as fire from heaven. Their demand is for miracles of mercy. So that the Christians don't ask God to crush their enemies. They pray for their enemies to have boundless reasons to believe what they're actually declaring about Jesus. They ask God for signs of his, his, his activity. They're saying to themselves, Lord, we want to see evidence that you've heard us so, so that our faith will be encouraged, so that, we'll have, uh, so that our confidence will be deepened. And God answered them in a way that no one was going to miss, verse 31. And when they prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with, with boldness. Now we know that not every prayer is answered with this sort of a, a immediacy and sort of dynamic realization. But in this particular case, God strengthens the faith of the believers by making the whole place shake and then filling them again with the Holy Spirit. Not because they'd lost the Spirit or, or because they hadn't yet received it, but because this is important. They prayed for God to give them boldness to speak his word. And the spirit of God was the one who would empower them to do this. Of course, as Christians today, at the moment of our conversion, the, the spirit of God immediately comes to us. He, he makes us Christians. And yet at the same time, in the letters of the New Testament, they also make it clear that throughout the Christian life, throughout the Christian journey, that we are further filled by the Spirit. It's like we're, we're refreshed and, and strengthened all the more in Him. This is what's happening here in this chapter in Acts. So the place shakes, the Spirit comes, leaving them with no doubt that God had heard them. One uh, Christian early church father Again, he goes by one name. I never noticed that until right now, Chrysostom. He says, you want to know what's happening here? It was this. The, the place was shaken, and that made them all the more unshaken. You see, they, they asked for boldness, and God gave them more of his spirit and recognizable evidence for them to press on with fearless confidence. I've heard you. I'm with you. I'm for you. I will not fail you. And so as we draw things to, to a close, I, I just simply take us back to where we started. And to say that as American Christians, we largely live without fear of death. But at the same time, we not acknowledge that the winds of change are upon us. That the, there's this pressure that is increasingly placed upon us to, to, to back away from what the scriptures say. And, and Acts 4 is a reminder to us that we shouldn't be surprised by this. That we shouldn't be undone by this, that we shouldn't respond violently to all of this, 
because this section in Acts shows us that we aren't unique, we're not alone, and that when we experience social voices that intimidate us, we can actually just open up to Acts 4, verse 29, and and make this our prayer for ourselves. Lord, help us to stand strong and to not shrink back from the scriptures. Grant us fearless confidence in Jesus and melt the hearts of those who are opposed to Christianity. You see, see, that's what the Christians in Acts 4 did in their day. And thus, in that way, they exemplify for us how to be Christians in our day. They prayed, and God answered in mighty power. Let's do the same, and then expect the same.